Welcome to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas. Thanks for checking out the pod today. I'm in the middle of a series that I'm calling Crucifying Elephants and Donkeys, where we're talking about politics because it's that time of year. And today I want to begin a kind of a two-part episode that I'm calling MAGA as Theology, Make America Great Again as Theology. And I originally just planned to do this as one episode, but as I kind of started to plan it out, realized that it's just going to be too long. So I'm going to split it into two. We'll release them uh, shortly one after the other so you can uh, have have them pretty in pretty quick succession, hopefully. And let me just say up front, a little bit of what my goal is and how I'm going to approach this just so everybody's on the same page. First, if you haven't listened to the first episode in this series, my interview with Caitlin Shess, you should do that. It's a fantastic conversation where I think she lays out just an absolutely masterclass way in which Christians should engage in politics, how we should think about politics as a whole. It's kind of a, a really good intro conversation to, to this because today we're going to get into some more kind of specific nitty-gritty stuff, uh, both politically and theologically. So if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to that first. So here's my here's my goal up front, okay? My goal is not to critique America as this terrible place, okay? Nor is my aim to critique everyone who votes for Trump, okay? Now, there are lots of people that are single voter issues, most likely abortion, that's the most common one, who will just vote Republican because of that issue. They just say, hey, listen, to me that that issue is just bigger than anything else, and so I'll just vote Republican down the ticket for that single issue. I may disagree with that strategy. I do. I think it's kind of shallow and simplistic, but I understand it. But I really have no desire to critique it. I I'll just leave that alone. It just it doesn't really bother me that much. What I want to get to, and we're going to have the conversation today, this episode is going to be kind of a more big picture conversation about some issues. And then in the next episode, we'll really narrow it down on Trump. But we have to have, I think, a little bit of a big picture conversation first so that uh, we understand kind of some of the terms and ideas that I'm critiquing. And my goal is to critique something very specific that I'm seeing uh, in the Republican Party and in much of the evangelical church in America, and that is the religious and theological and really Christianized language that's used to talk about Trump in such a way that conflates the purposes of God for the nation's with America becoming great or with the Republican platform or with Trump being the president. So my my issue here, my critique is not necessarily really a partisan one. In fact, the example that we're going to walk through at the end of this episode is with a, a Democrat, a famous Democrat. And so it's it's not a partisan issue here. It's a theological one. It's a a religious one. It's a Christian one. It's a Jesus one. That's going to be my Critique. So I want that to be known up front just so we can all be on the same page. So our long-term target here is going to be this the phrase MAGA, make America great again, as I think a dangerous theological statement, the way that that's talked about using theological language. 
But first, I think we have to define some terms and some ideas so that when we do that, we're all on the same page. So let's begin with the word America. So we're make America great again. Let's first talk about America. America is at least four things. And I'm, I'm getting this from a few different people. America is at least four things. One, it's a country. Two, it's a culture. Three, it's an empire. I'll define that in a second. And four, it's a religion. As a country and a culture, America is a mixed bag like any country and culture. Okay. And again, my, my goal here is not to really critique that at all. We can have lots of conversations about the goods and bads and uglies of America as a, as a place and as a culture and what that means for the world and all that kind of stuff. It's, there's some good, there's some bad, but we're gonna, just going to leave that alone. America is an empire. What do I mean by empire? An empire, and this is, I mean this in a, in a I'm using that word in a theological sense, in a, in a biblical sense, in a theological sense. And we'll look at a few examples of empire here in a moment from Scripture. But an empire is a rich and powerful nation that feels that they have the duty and the divine right to shape the world and history by their own hand and using their own purposes. So say that again. An empire is a rich and powerful nation that feels they have the duty and the divine right to shape the world and history by their own hand. And that really is America. And again, we'll... we'll unpack that more at the end of episode of the end of the, this episode and in the next but we are the rich and powerful nation of our day of our time we have been obviously for some time and my concern and this is not a modern one we're going to see that this has been an american issue all throughout just like it has for really every other empire in history is that we have baptized our language and our thoughts and our ideas about our country in Christian theology and in Christian language and warp that language and warp that theology away from Jesus in in order to serve the purposes of America. So easy example of this is how uh, people will just read America into the Old Testament story in the place of Israel. Right? That's a way in which biblical stories get used in order to serve American purposes so that we have some sense of divine endorsement on what we're going to do. Okay, And America is also a religion. This one take a little bit longer, I think, to unfold and to show. What do I mean by a religion? Again, it's borrowing from the Christian tradition and scriptures and language and story and applying it to itself as a type, a, a way to make America as a type of God that demands your allegiance. We actually have something called the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Which is ironic because Christians are supposed to only pledge their allegiance to Jesus. That's a whole other topic. That probably is just going to get me in trouble about just by saying that, but that's okay. Right? But we pledge our allegiance to, to Jesus and and in return, this God of America will give you certain things. We call that the American dream, certain way of life, certain prosperity, right? And so there's, we serve America, and this is where God and country talk comes in. We serve America. Don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And in return, your country will do everything for you that you could ever dream, and we call that the American dream. That's what I mean by religion, and we we 
we frame that using Christian language and theology and story and scripture. Right Here's a, a few more ways in which America can be seen and understood as a religion. Every religion has a creation story, a creation myth, and America has one that we were, you know, this uh, a bunch of holy Christians that were sick of being persecuted and fled to this country and started a nation purely based on the Bible, and we just wanted to be able to worship freely, and that's it. And that was, right, it's this very stripped-down um, very whitewashed version of what actually happened in order to make it look like, yeah, we're just this righteous people who started this righteous nation and God raised us up. to. And you'll get even pastors and politicians who will say such things. I've heard them from politicians and from pastors from pulpits say things as overtly as, in the history of the world, God has raised up two people in two nations, America and Israel. I mean, I've heard pastors say that from the pulpit. What is that? That's a creation myth that we are, we were created. This nation was created by the hand of God, just like every religion has. Just like the story of the Bible where Israel has a land, we have a land, obviously the American soil, and you can go uh, read just about anything from that time from uh, the presidents, Ulysses S. Grant and others, and you will find, or pastors, and you will find people using language like America is our Canaan and the natives are the Canaanites and we need to drive them out because God has given us this land to worship on. And it's just reading our, again, reading our uh, ourselves into the biblical narrative in order for God, for us to have some, some sense of divine justification for what we're doing. So yeah, we're killing Native Americans and we're taking their land and we're sending them to reservations, but God is the one endorsing us because we are a new kind of Israel and this is our land. And just as he dispossessed the Canaanites, so he's dispossessing them. And now we have, you know, moral reasoning to do all of the crazy things that we did. Right? It has its own vision of the good life like every religion does. We call that the American dream. Right? You just simply have to become American, and you too can have this. It has its own insiders and outsiders. Americans are the insiders. Historically, it's mostly been white Americans who have been the insiders. Now, in kind of modern times, in, uh, in our current climate, it's Republican Christians who are the insiders, and it's the liberal Democrats who are the outsiders who are trying to destroy America. And if you listen to how those conversations happen a lot of times, it's, again, destroying America and the purposes of God are talked about hand in hand as if they are the same thing, right? And that's that's what I mean by religion is you're not just destroying a culture, you're destroying a thing that God built, you're destroying the people and the place that God has ordained, and you are the outsiders and we're the insiders and all of the like. America has its own creeds and liturgies, like the anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance. And if you think I'm crazy, just try sitting for the Pledge of Allegiance sometime. This actually happened to me once. I was in Boston um, for like a day and I'd always, I'm a big sports fan. So I wanted to go to a Red Sox game at Fenway park. And so, uh, I went to a, a game and it was like really cold and rainy. I think it was September. It was really cold and rainy and I was not feeling super well. And so I didn't stand for the pledge of allegiance because, because I, 
I was just trying to enjoy as much as I could my time at Fenway Park and wasn't really, but was just trying to be at Fenway Park because I had the chance to. And I had people around me get really angry with me um, and say stuff to me. Like, how dare you? And other people looking at me like, how dare you not stand up and, you know, recite the Pledge of Allegiance or, or uh, sing the national anthem and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, again, it evokes this religious zeal, this religious fervor out of people. And you can see that in the positive too, in something like after 9-11, patriotism soared through the roof and people felt more American and would weep their eyes out when they would sing the national anthem uh, because it was it was evoking a kind of sense of uh, national religious uh, fervor and identity and zeal and emotion in people. It has sacred symbols like the flag. Uh, a crazy one to me is if you were to go into, I don't know how many people know this, but if you're going to the U.S. Capitol building into the, in, in Washington, into the rotunda and just look up the 40, 50, 60 feet, whatever it is, you would see this massive mural painted on the ceiling, and it's called the Apotheosis of George Washington. Apotheosis simply meaning to make a God or to ascend to heaven as God. And it's a, uh, it was painted in 1865. The, the gentleman who painted it previous to that had painted uh, ceilings in the Vatican, and so he was actually a, a trained religious painter. And it depicts, just Google it, the Apotheosis of Washington. It depicts George Washington on a cloud, ascended to heaven, flanked by goddesses, a bunch of other scenes around there, but all set in these heavenly settings and American symbols all over the place of war and finance and prosperity and agriculture and all of this kind of stuff. But it's the ascension of George Washington into the heavens on kind of this this throne above all the other gods becoming um, divine. That is religious iconography um you know in american political form that's all that that is that is um sacred symbols being hijacked and used for political purposes i mean that that sends an actual message that our first president we have depicted as a god ascending into heaven that should alarm us to, to something that should at least awaken us to like maybe something is going on here that we should be concerned about. And then lastly, like any religion, we have sacred texts, we have the constitution, we have the declaration and they're used as these authorities in order to rule our life and, and, and whatnot. And like I said, in the American experiment here, uh, we also use the biblical texts and, We'll use those to speak of America, and we'll actually look at an example of that here in, in just a moment. So America is those four things, a country, culture, an empire, and a religion. And what my concern is, and why I wanted to do this, this little two-part series here, is I think in the era of Trump, the idea of America as empire and religion, which, by the way, always go hand in hand. They always go together. Every empire by nature, has nationalistic religious zeal to it and has their gods basically as servants to the empire. And I see a, a renewed or a heightened sense of that 
in the Trump era and specifically from evangelical Christians. And that's in episode two of this little two-part. That's what I I, want to talk about. But first, I think we have to, again, talk about kind of big picture and define some of our, our terms. So let's get biblical and theological here a little more for a second. I want everyone to recognize that this idea or this problem of nationalistic civil religion is not uniquely modern or American. It's one of the age-old tactics of the principalities and powers that every empire, and again, an empire is a rich and powerful nation with a sense of manifest destiny, divinely endorsed by God to rule the earth, that every one of those has operated in this way. And we see this in Scripture, from literally from Genesis to Revelation, and actually, the story of Scripture really traces and follows and kind of revolves around three empires and and then, I suppose, the alternative, the kingdom of God, right? And in Scripture, we have Egypt, Babylon, and Rome. So in the Exodus, we see these ten plagues, and, and in each of these cases, in each of these stories, in each of these portions of of scripture, God challenges and exposes the empire for what it is and and eventually overthrows it. So in Exodus, he sends the 10 plagues, and these are not just 10 random things that happen to put pressure on Pharaoh to let people go. If you study out the, the gods of Egypt, each of the plagues, including the 10th one, which was aimed at Pharaoh, were aimed to expose and overthrow a false god of Egypt to show that the living God, the God of Israel, is the true God. Right? So it's a direct challenge to the religion of the empire, to the gods of the empire. In the book of Daniel, we come to, to the kingdom of the empire of Babylon, and Daniel has all these visions and dreams, or in the book of Daniel, I should say, you see all these visions and dreams of kingdoms that are represented usually by beasts or beastly statues. And in one, uh, a rock from heaven, a stone from heaven is said to come in and destroy this, this beastly statue. And so what does what happens in, in the book of Daniel? One of the kind of culminating scenes or stories in the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar has one of these dreams, and instead of heeding the dream, he actually builds a statue, a huge statue of himself out of pure gold and demands everyone bow down and worship it. Again, this is the mixing of religion and empire. He's the political figure of the empire. He's the the face, so to speak, of the empire, and he builds a giant idol for everyone to bow down and worship it. And what he's symbolizing is that we are the chosen of God. We are the ones who rule the world. We are the powerful with God on our side, and no one can do anything about it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to, to do that. And God ends up obviously intervening in their life. But then he also intervenes in Nebuchadnezzar, and he warns Nebuchadnezzar, and he turns Nebuchadnezzar into a beast just like what he saw in the dream. So the, the beasts that represented the empire, Nebuchadnezzar himself becomes a beast. And then lastly, we get to Rome and in Jesus' day. 
And in Rome, there was civil religion, really kind of of all flavors and, and kinds. Caesar was called the king of kings. He was called the son of God. He was thought to be divine. They had an actual imperial goddess named Roma um, that was that was worshipped, and it was literally just the worship of the empire. But even in Jesus's day, and this is probably actually a little bit more kind of applicable to us, something we can maybe even wrap our minds around even a little bit more, is we see a form of civil religion in the Jewish people themselves in kind of two different forms. One, you had the Jewish establishment and the elites who basically traded the God of Israel for Caesar, for power and money and influence. And so when they're standing before Pilate, and Pilate is wondering what to do with Jesus. What do they say? They say, we have no king but Caesar, which is obviously a completely heretical claim to their own faith. But at that same time, so again, so they're, they're mixing their power of the day and their, their relationship with the Roman Empire and saying, listen, we have no allegiance but to Caesar. We have no God but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That's civil religion. Also, you have this group called the Zealots. Now, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, and that isn't just a description of his personality or his, you know, Enneagram or something like that. Uh, the Zealots were a, a political movement of revolutionaries who wanted to basically take Israel back for God through a violent revolution. And they wanted to overthrow the Romans. They eventually tried in 67, 68, 69 AD. And they wanted to make Israel great again and return it to his glory days. And uh, this was actually probably what uh, Barabbas was and why he was in jail. He was most likely a zealot. But Jesus repeatedly warns against this notion and when he's before Pilate privately, what does he say? Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world because if it was, my followers were fight, but my followers are not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. I could call down, you know, legions of angels, but I'm not because my kingdom doesn't operate the way that the empires and the kingdoms of this world do and don't confirm. Don't confuse the two. And what we have to see is that in Jesus' day and in for the first basically 300 years of the church, there was the opportunity for Jesus to try and either overthrow Rome, take over the government, you know, what we would call, I guess, Christianize the government. And Jesus and his followers refused it every single time. Why? Because they viewed the kingdom of God not just as this spiritual reality or cliche, they viewed it as a real thing. It was a real kingdom that challenged the kingdoms of this world, that challenged the empires of this world, that Jesus was a and is a real king, that that's just not some title that he has. That's really who he is right now. He is the king of the nations. And so when we say that we are Christians and belong to the kingdom of God, it means that we pledge allegiance to that kingdom rather than any other kingdom. And so, but the strategy that, that Jesus and early Christian, Christians employed was not to try and Christianize Rome, was not try to overthrow Rome, was not try to, you know, work their way into the government and 
and change the laws of Rome. That's not what they were trying to do at all. And that should strike us that they didn't employ those tactics whatsoever. And so America is just following in this same tradition. And we see it from, again, when I went through as America as a, as a religion, from the very beginning of reading America into you know, the place of Israel and having a sense of manifest destiny, God is on our side, we're always the good guys, so on and so forth. So let me give you an example of, a really overt example of, of this, and, and then we'll end this episode here, and how this works out in our, our modern day and language and, and how we can kind of see this. So right now I'm actually in Dallas, Texas, and just this afternoon I went to the JFK Memorial where uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And there at the memorial, overlooking the road where he was, where he was shot uh, while he was in his, in his motorcade, there's a huge plaque uh, in the ground. And on that plaque is the final paragraph of the speech that President Kennedy was supposed to give later that day. Obviously, he never gave it. And it's, it's right there, at, literally etched in stone as a memorial. I want to read it to you. And I want you to pay attention to all of the religious language, specifically biblical language that's used, but how it's used to speak about America and how it completely takes biblical, Christian, scriptural words and ideas and twists them for America's own purposes. This is the final paragraph of JFK's speech on the day that he he was supposed to give on the day that he was assassinated. It reads... We in this country, in this generation, are by destiny rather than by choice, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. We ask, therefore, that we may be worthy of our power and responsibility, that we may exercise our strength with wisdom and restraint, and that we may achieve in our time and for all time the ancient vision of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That must always be our goal, and the righteousness of our cause must always underlie our strength. For as was written long ago, except the Lord keepeth the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Now, did you catch all of the ways that the kingdom of God, that Christianity, that the Bible were mingled, construed, and just completely overtly altered to serve American purposes. And if you read this speech in a whole, remember this is we're in wartime, most of this speech is talking about the current war, the Vietnam War. So just a few things to pull out. Our country, he says, was destined. This isn't by choice. This is destiny by God to reign over the whole earth, to reign over the nations, and to establish Peace and goodwill. Now, what, what is that a quotation of? He is directly taking the proclamation of the angels at Jesus' birth and applying it to America. What JFK just did is he read America into the biblical story as the literal savior and ruler of the world. And here is exactly the point and why this is a big deal. 
empires through their religion, through their sense of manifest destiny, attempt to lay hold of and claim the very thing that God has promised his son and the very thing that Jesus came to do in his cross and resurrection and ascension and what he will accomplish fully in his return. And that is rulership over the world where the nations serve him. This is idolatrous and, if I could say it, antichrist to the ultimate degree. That when we, in statements like this, when we say America is, has a sense of divine destiny and manifest destiny to rule the nations and bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men, and we take the language that's used, spoken of Jesus at his birth as a pronouncement of his kingdom, the kingdom that has come through Christ, through his death, resurrection, ascension, and return, we are directly confronting and directly challenging the lordship of Jesus, and we're doing it to serve our own purposes. And this is why this is such a big deal. And this is why this is, I think, so dangerous. And we'll get to how I think this same language is being implored largely today to speak about Trump by the evangelical church. Is because, And why it's so troubling to me is because as the church, as the ones who are supposed to worship, follow Jesus and belong to that kingdom, we are using his name and the language and the scriptures and the stories of his kingdom and applying it to a different kingdom that's trying to lay claim to the very thing that Jesus has. Now also notice in this statement, and we'll finish here, also notice in the statement that our cause, JFK says, is righteous, meaning that we can't do wrong because God's on our side, that God's endorsed us. And what is that righteousness upholding? It's upholding our strength, and that strength clearly in context, because this is mostly a, a speech about war and and the conflicts that are going on, that our righteousness, our we can do no wrong because God is on our side, is holding up and endorsing our use of violent military force and killing other people on the other side of the planet. Simply, God's endorsing our, our wars. He's endorsing our, our violence. And then he ends with a quotation from the Psalms where America is seen as the house that God is building the house that we're supposed to watch over, right? It's not the church. It's not the kingdom. No, it's America. And all this language is just baked into the fabric of our country and our history. And if you at this point or at any point have said, okay, listen, I don't really quite understand why this is such a big deal. I mean, hopefully you did from what I was just saying. But if you've thought that, then... I would say that that actually proves my point. The fact that an American president and icon, I mean, this is JFK, can overtly equate our country with the savior of the world using our own sacred scripture and it not immediately alarm us and strike us as idolatrous, that should, A, prove to us how much this is in our, our history, how this is the air that we breathe, how this is the water that we swim in, how this is the thing that we consume, and how we really have bought into something, this, this civil religion, at a very deep level of, of who we are. And it should terrify all of us that one of our presidents and many of our presidents can, in a single paragraph, 
weave together threads of national pride, manifest destiny to rule the earth, salvation, righteousness, war. Weave all those threads together using our own scriptures and we don't think anything about it. That should frighten us. That should terrify us. That such idolatrous statements could be made. And we go, ah, is that really such a big deal? Because it uses our own language and just because we're so accustomed to it and so used to it. And this is exactly what I see going on in our current day. This is why it troubles me so much. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. So thank you for so much for checking out this one. Make sure you go over to episode two of, of Mega as Theology, where we talk about our current situation, our current day in the area of, era of Trump. And we'll see you on the other side.